It is wonderful to be here with you this morning. Certainly appreciate Carrie's prayer on my behalf, and if you're visiting with us this morning, we're certainly pleased that you could be here with us, and we're thankful and blessed by your presence. We pray that our assembly is beneficial and is edifying for you, and that what I present to you this morning will be edifying for you as well. We continue looking in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 as we've gone through the book of 1 Corinthians, and we've looked at all of the struggles that church had in uh, in Corinth and everything that goes on. And Paul, at the end of all of it, talks about the resurrection. And I know in here there's a reason he needed to talk about the resurrection in the sense that there was some under misunderstanding or misinformation that they had been given that the resurrection didn't happen or the resurrection wasn't going to occur. And he's dealing with that problem. But what Paul does throughout chapter 15 is he promotes a resurrection-driven life. And I tell you why, because he kind of does it in three phases. The first phase, which we went over in talking about the resurrection, and he talked about the gospel and the very fundamentals of what the gospel was. And he talked about the resurrection evidence is the resurrection of Christ and the evidences that there are, that there was scriptural evidence, that there were eyewitness evidence, and that even Paul's life himself wasn't the evidence for the resurrection. And then there's kind of this application part in there where he talks about the implications that if Christ is not raised from the dead, there's a lot of problems that creates. So it should promote a resurrection-driven life. And then the section that we talk about today, he lays out some principles, and at the end there's application. And then there's a third section. He talks more about the mechanics of the resurrection and then there's application. And so this application or motivation or this drive to live a resurrection-driven life. And he hammers that over and over again. And I think that's very important as we go through this and read these passages in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And I'll be honest today, my intention was to cover the last 30-some-odd verses. And as I had it broken out, uh, I had to be honest with myself and with my penchant for lengthy sermons. I wasn't going to be able to cover 35 verses today. So we're actually going to do this in three sections instead of two. But today as we go through and we continue on, whereas Paul has left off where we left off last time about the resurrection facts. If there is no resurrection, there's all these implications that the apostles were liars, that you're still in your sin. That death is the end, but at the end of all of it, we of all people should be most pitied. That the resurrection and the gospel, the resurrection is the linchpin of the gospel. If it's not there, there's no point in the gospel. If the gospel's not there, there's no point in what you and I are doing today. There's no point in a kingdom here on earth. None of this matters if Christ didn't raise from the dead. So what were they doing? He continues to drive this home whenever he's in the next verse, he says, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. The first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as one man came death by man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ the first fruits, then at his coming those who belong to Christ. You know, similar passages 
have been that you can read throughout the scriptures about Christ being the first fruits. In Colossians chapter 1 and verse 8 talks about him being the firstborn of the dead. In Revelation chapter 1 and verse 5, it says that Jesus is the first begotten of the dead. And I believe to fully appreciate this first fruits principle that Paul is laying out, you can go back to the book of Leviticus and Leviticus chapter 23 and read about their first fruits offering, their first fruits sacrifice. In Leviticus chapter 23, there was instructions given for the Passover, and then instructions were given for waving a sheaf of the first fruits of the harvest. Now, the time that it was supposed to happen, it was the day after the Sabbath during the Passover. Now, the significance also in this was the sheaf that served as proof of a harvest. The sheaf that they served, that they would wave, would show as proof of the harvest. That was their first fruits. So, how does this apply to Christ? Well, when, when did the resurrection happen? The first day after the Sabbath, on the Passover. And what does this signify? It signifies Him being the first fruit. It serves as proof that He was raised. It serves as proof that He was the first fruits. And you see this connection from an Old Testament principle time and time again, and this is just another connection that's out there. In Romans chapter 5 and verse 12, he talks a lot, Paul's talking about, for as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall be made alive. In Romans chapter 5 and verse 12, Paul talks about there, he says, for by one man sin entered into the world and death by sin, so that death passed on to all men, for that all have sinned. And he's talking about Adam bringing that in, and I know that there is an idea out there that we have all inherited Adam's original sin, but that's not what Paul is talking about. He's talking about the nature of mankind. And that's perfectly illustrated whenever we think about nature and how we operate. Whenever you, There's an old fable about a frog and a scorpion. And a river was rising, and the scorpion said, I need to get across the river. And he asked the frog, will you give me a ride? And the frog says, no way. You're a scorpion. I'm a frog. This is not how this works. And the scorpion begs and pleads and makes his case for the frog to get him across the river. And the frog finally says, okay, I'll do it. Midway, as they're about halfway through the river, the scorpion stings the frog. And the frog says, why did you do this? Now we're both going to die. And the scorpion says, I'm a scorpion. That's in his nature. That's what he does. Guess what? That's what humankind is. We don't have Adam's original sin on us, but what we do have is the nature of Adam. We are going to sin. And that's what that verse is talking about. Now, Paul comes back in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, and he kind of concludes that principle. For in one man, for in Adam, all die, but in Christ, the first fruits, all will be made alive. All will be okay. All will overcome death. Notice the parallel in verse 21. For as in 
as by a man came death, by a man came also the resurrection of the dead. What has to be understood here is that it was a man, both times. A man, through man came death, but also through man came the resurrection. This wasn't just something spiritual. This was a physical man resurrection of Jesus Christ. And that's very important as we go on later on and we talk about the mechanics of the resurrection. There is an idea that the resurrection is just something that is spiritual. But if our resurrection is in the likeness of Christ's resurrection, was Christ physical? Or was it a spiritual resurrection? What did Christ do with the apostles or the disciples after He was resurrected? He ate with them. It was a physical resurrection. It's not just spiritual. And that's very important that we understand that. And this parallel that He's weaning, weaving between Adam and Christ is also very important. It establishes His first fruits. It establishes... His power, it establishes what's going to happen for those that come after Christ. For those that are Christ's. Now, why would this be important to the church at Corinth? For the same reason it's important for you and I. It's a faith statement. It's something that we can put every bit of our knowledge of what Adam happened with Adam and what happened with Christ. It's an understanding that we have a guarantee. Just as death entered into the world, the resurrection will come that belong to Christ. They needed to understand that. They were being taught there was no resurrection. Their faith was wavering. We need the same thing. We need that guarantee just as the church in Corinth needed that guarantee. Now we know that we will be raised from the dead and the likeness that Christ was in Christ being raised from the dead. And as he goes on, he says, then comes the end. When he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power, for he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. I want you to notice what he says there after the resurrection. After this whole thing in the first fruits and what Christ is, he says, then comes the end. There is no other alternative here. This is the end. There is no premillennial, there is no thousand-year reign, there is any, none of those things. This is the end. When He returns to bring His back and resurrect them from the dead, this is the end. Next question, when He talks about Him delivering the kingdom to God the Father, what is the kingdom? There's a lot of different ideas on what the kingdom is out there. And I have to be honest, if you were to pull up my laptop today in my web browser, there's probably more tabs open 
on research than there's been in, a, in quite a bit of time. Because as you go through 1 Corinthians chapter 15, there are no ideas where they all land the same place. And there's a lot of crazy ideas out there, to be quite honest. But what is the kingdom? Some might say that this is earth. Some might say that this is a thousand-year reign. So what is the kingdom? I believe that the kingdom and the principle of the kingdom is laid out quite clearly. When Christ was being accosted, there were those that said, hey, where's your, where are those that you're going to fight for you? And Christ said, you know, if my kingdom was of this world, that would be the case. I want you to see what he says in Matthew chapter 4 and verse 17. When Christ began to preach, it says, From that time Jesus began to preach and say, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The kingdom of heaven was something that was close. In Mark chapter 9 and verse 1, he said, Assuredly, I say to you, that there are some standing here who will not taste death till they see the kingdom of God present with power. So what else does that mean? Well, obviously that means that Christ was teaching that the kingdom would come before those that all those people died off. So the kingdom came and has been around for quite some time. In Colossians chapter 1 and verse 13, Paul says there, He has delivered us from the power of darkness and translated us into the kingdom of His dear Son. What was Paul talking about there? The church. Paul was talking about the church. We're translated into His kingdom of His dear Son. That is what's going to be delivered. That's what Christ will turn over after the last enemy, that is, death is destroyed. Christ's resurrection shows that He has power over death. Christ's resurrection shows that He has all power and authority. Death will be destroyed, which means that He is the ultimate uh, power. Now, as he goes on in chapters or verses 27 and 28, says, For God has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when it says all things are put in subjection, it is plain that he is expected who put all things in subjection under him. When all things are subjected to him, then the Son of him, Son himself will also be subjected to him who put all things in subjection under him that God may be all in all. How many times can Paul use the word subjection? That is a very wordy way of saying, here's the order of things. When all things, when it's all said and done, all things are in subjection under him. When he delivers that kingdom to God, then he will be in subjection to God because it was God that gave him the power. For who put all things in subjection under him that God may be all in all. 
So what you're seeing here is the complete circle of the process. Now, interestingly, Paul goes back to the Old Testament to reference these verses in Psalms chapter 8 and Psalms chapter uh, 110. And as I was reading this and going through this, when Brad gave his lesson on the mediator, a thought occurred to me, and it's one of those different ideas or the more you study type deals where these layers just keep coming off. Christ's role as mediator and we currently have, and you think about Christ isn't just the mediator, He's a lot of different things. But in that role of mediator, what does a mediator do? Well, a mediator represents both sides of a party equally. And I know probably a little incorrect thinking that we have in Christianity today is that Christ really represents our needs, but actually He represents God's needs just as much as our needs. And God's rule just as much as our needs. So He can't say, hey, I, I have a, a pain in my heart for the human creation and I want to lean more towards them. He has to represent God equally. And he has to represent us. That involves a lot of different things as far as God's rule, God's law, what God has laid out for us and what he wants from us in obedience. Christ has to represent all of those things. But he also underst we understand the grace of God and how that Christ represents that as well. Now, that's a long way to get to this point. As the mediator... At the end of all of it, he turns and says, here's the kingdom. At the end of all of it, here's our mediator who says, I'm giving you the kingdom. Do you realize the comfort that is? Do you realize the joy we should have? And knowing that our mediator is that vested and invested in us, if it isn't obvious enough in the sense that he gave his life for us, hey, here's another clue of how invested he is in us. Here's your kingdom. Not only have I sacrificed, foregone the glories of heaven, Submitted myself to the creation of which I created. Submitted myself to death. Acted as their mediator all of this time. And in the end, I give it to you. What a great understanding and what great joy and comfort we can have on that. So based on these principles, as Paul says, him being Christ being the first fruits, what that entails as far as him having ultimate authority and power and bringing death in subjection, there are some principles that should apply to your life. And the first one is the most difficult. In verse 29, otherwise, what do we. What do people mean by being baptized 
On behalf of the dead, if the dead are not raised at all, why are people baptized on their behalf? When I was studying this, I was reading everything in the King James Version, and it doesn't read like this reads. And I was thinking, this is a layup, easy principle. And then I read it in the ESV, and I immediately called Jason, and I was like, I don't understand this all of a sudden. It doesn't read the way I had read it all this time. And I talked to Trevor, and I called my brother, and this is one of the, this one verse is probably the reason why I have 50 tabs open on my laptop. Because nobody agrees. Not a single person that you will say will agree on what this verse means. And every, almost every one of them, there's multiple interpretations. So this is what I'm going to tell you. I'm not smarter than any of those people. <laughs> definitely not smarter than Jason and definitely not smarter than Trevor. So here's the way I think we need to understand this first and foremost. When we come across a passage that's difficult, that really hangs us up, obviously we need to go talk to people, maybe people that have a little bit more wisdom and understanding about it. But sometimes they're confused as well. They don't have a clear interpretation either. What we know we cannot do is take an interpretation that is contradictory to other principles throughout the Scriptures. There is a denomination out there that has hung a large part of their doctrine on this passage. And the interpretation they use is that you can be baptized for someone who's already dead. And when you read it like that, kind of sounds, that's what he's saying. But whenever you pull it out of context, that's the only way you can get that verse to mean that. But it has to be pulled out of context. And this is why, probably another reason we talk about context so much. What is the context here? The context is resurrection. That's what he's talking about. He's talking about the resurrection, and that's what he's driving at. This first point in chapter, in verse 29, is intended to be an application principle. So I'm going to give you three primary interpretations of this, and then I will give you, tell you which one, where I land in all of this, and why. But I also reserve the right to say I'm wrong. The first interpretation is the dead refers to the old man of sin, Romans chapter 6. Paul was asking, why would one be baptized to eliminate the old man of sin in anticipation of eternal acceptance. So that's the first interpretation. The second interpretation is the dead refers to the world of lost souls. Those that are spiritually dead. Paul was saying, why would the apostles subject themselves 
to baptism of suffering in behalf of the spiritually dead. The third, Paul was using a, a logical argument of things going on around that time. There were other pagan religions that were teaching principles of baptism on, from their understanding. So those are the three interpretations that you're going to see. The one I land on and the one that I most, as I read it from the King James Version, the one I thought of was the Romans chapter 6. The dead refers to the old man of sin. And here's why. We're going to read Romans chapter 6, verses 1 through 11. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized in Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? So Paul asked this question, why? At the end of Romans chapter 5, he's been talking about the grace of God. And he asked the question in chapter 6. It was a question that he knew that they were asking. Well, if the grace of God abounds so much, shouldn't we just go on continuing in sin so that the grace of God may abound even more? And Paul says, definitely not. Here's the reason why. You that have been baptized into Christ have been baptized into His death. We were buried, therefore, with Him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness and life. So this is why you were baptized. You were buried into His baptism into death, in order that as Christ was raised from the dead, you may walk in a newness of life. For if we've been united with Him in death... Like His, we shall certainly be united with Him in a resurrection like His. And that's exactly what Paul has been teaching here. This is where the principle of Adam has come in. As, death, as one by one man, death, sin entered the world, and so death by sin, the same thing with Christ. We've been united in His death. We will be united in His resurrection. I just lost that screen. <laughs> we know that our old self was crucified with Him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. So this process that Paul is talking about in being baptized into the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ does has a very important process to it. For one has died, who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we also live with Him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over Him. It's exactly what Paul has been talking about. He has authority and power over death. <clears throat> For death, the death He died, He died to sin. Once for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. And as Paul goes through this passage and understanding what they're being baptized for, ultimately, wherever you land on whatever the interpretation of that, what is he driving at? What's the point of baptism? 
This isn't a command to be baptized. He's referencing something that's already occurred. What was the point of it? If none of this happened, what was the point of it? The second point of application. Why are we in danger every hour? I protest, brothers, by my bride in you, which I have in Christ Jesus, our Lord. I die every day. What do I gain if, humanly speaking, I fought with beets at Ephesus, if the dead are not rise? Let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. So Paul quotes Isaiah whenever he says, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. But he asks the question, why are we in danger every hour? Why are we going through what we're going through? Why did I fight beasts in Ephesus? Now, if he actually fought beasts, it's something that maybe not recorded. He may be talking about Acts chapter 19. I don't know. But at the end of it, when you go into 2 Corinthians chapter 4 and 2 Corinthians chapter 5, Paul goes through this laundry list of things that he went through. And not only Paul himself, whenever you think about all the disciples and the apostles and what they went through, how many of them were martyred? How many of them... They didn't have anything to eat. They relied completely on other people. Why? What was the point if we're not going to be resurrected? And I think about us today. From their perspective, the early New Testament church and the persecution they suffered, I believe the resurrection had a little bit heavier weight for them. They were constantly under point of being killed, being robbed. Did you know it was common in Rome that they could go into a Christian's home and just take whatever they wanted? And the Christian had no right. And I think about us and how absolutely pathetic we are sometimes at the simplest inconveniences in our life and the problems that causes. It's absolutely astounding. Think about the things that we complain about. Whenever you think about the number of things that we have going on as a congregation, outside of this building, and the number of people that have opened their homes and said, you know, let's do things together. You know, you sometimes just go, man, I don't want to go. Are you kidding me? Are you kidding me? It's a slight inconvenience. We had nothing like what Paul was going through. We we don't have to worry about walking out 
and people robbing us and taking everything that we have just because of a gospel that we present, a life that we live because we choose to come here two times, three times, one time a week, however often it is. This was supposed to be motivating. This was supposed to be encouraging. Why am I doing all of this? Why are we doing all of this? What's the purpose if there is no resurrection? But we have the audacity to complain about the simplest of things. It really is amazing. In 2,000 years, the perspective and how it's rotated. It really puts our life, or should put our life, in its proper perspective. And appreciate the blessings that we have. And appreciate the opportunities that we have. The third point of application, if you didn't feel bad enough already. Do not be deceived. Bad company ruins good morals. Wake up for your drunken stupor as is right and do not go on sinning. For some have no knowledge of God. I say this to your shame. It's amazing how these principles that Paul talks about and the application there is applied to them at Corinth, and you think about all the problems they have, the pettiness they had, the sexual immorality they had, the rebellion they had, all of those things applied to them, but guess what? We're no different. They still apply to us. Do not be deceived. Bad companies ruins good morals. This is a passage that we use a lot of times in a lot of different ways, but in the context of what Paul is talking about, the bad company they had had was the company that said, hey, there is no resurrection. You should go on and essentially live your life the way you want to live it. Eat, drink, because we're all going to die tomorrow anyways. They were abandoning the principles of Christ. They were abandoning the principles of the resurrection for the world. And they had done that because they were aligning themselves and the relationships they were having were corrupting them. The world that we live in is no different than the world that Corinth was in. As a matter of fact, I would say in the 2,000 years since then, we're probably closer to Corinth than we've ever been. The principle still stands. Who you associate with, who you spend your time with, has an impact and has an influence on your life. I don't remember if it was my wife that was telling me the statistic or if somebody else was telling me uh, the statistic. But it was talking about who we spend 70% of our time with and how much that impacts our life. Whether that's family, work, friends, extracurricular activities, 
how much that actually has impact on our lives. When I was younger and I was at Boys Ranch, there were a lot of guys that I grew up with that went out to Boys Ranch and absolutely set the world on fire. They came from broken homes. A lot of them came from juvenile imprisonment. And they came to Boys Ranch and set the world absolutely on fire. And I've always been amazed at the number of those guys that left Boys Ranch and went back to the life that they lived prior to coming to Boys Ranch. It's the exact same life. Why? Because they went back to the same people that they were there with before. And the only break in that was when they were at Boys Ranch where there was discipline, there was dedication, and there was instruction. But the moment that went away and they went back to the people that they had been around before, their life went back to the same thing. That's what was happening in Corinth. This church was falling off the rails because they were trying to go back to the life and be with the world around them. And it's only evidence is what Paul says. You are constantly in a drunken stupor. You think about what Paul talked about in 1 Corinthians chapter 11 when they were having communion. This was a meal. One person's getting drunk. Another person doesn't even have anything to eat. It gets worse. For some who have no knowledge of God. I say this to your shame. And this can be interpreted two ways. The first of which is worse that there are those at the church in Corinth who actually had no knowledge of God. And the second, in my opinion, is just as bad that there were those around them in Corinth that had no knowledge of God. They weren't being the light that they were supposed to be. They'd allow the world to snuff it out. There is no resurrection. There is none of these things. And all we're doing is living like all of these other pagan religions and doing the same thing. And he says, I say this to your shame. The question is, if you interpret that, that sentence either one of those ways and look at your own personal life, do you and your family have a knowledge of God? Do those around you know of the gospel? Or is Paul speaking to us just like he spoke to the church at Corinth? I say this to your shame. I imagine it's both. They were lacking in a knowledge of God because Paul was having to teach them the basics over and over again. And because they were lacking in a knowledge of God, the world around them was also lacking in the same knowledge. So as Paul drives home these points of application and how personal the resurrection really is to our lives. That this isn't something that we have a hope for. This is an absolute guarantee. That Christ will return 
That is a guarantee. That He will deliver His kingdom. That is a guarantee. And because of those things, here's the life that this should motivate. Here's the life that this should promote. It's a life that understands its place in the kingdom. It's a life that understands that you have fellowship with Christ. And having fellowship with Christ, you have fellowship with other like-minded people. It's a life that understands that if you are going to go out into the darkness, you're going to become dark too. And shame on us if we can't understand that. Shame on us if we don't live these principles out in our life. It gets more uplifting and encouraging as Paul goes through. (laughs) I promise. What should be uplifting and encouraging in this passage that we have, this section that we've read today is this. You have the guarantee. You have a guarantee that you're going to be resurrected with Christ. You have a guarantee that He is going to have ultimate authority and power. Death will be defeated. And you have a guarantee that if you're a part of His kingdom, you are going to be delivered to God. The question in all of that is, are you a part of His kingdom? Have you submitted yourself so that you can say that I'm a part of the kingdom of God? What did Paul in Colossians chapter 1 and verse 8 say? That we could be thankful that we have been translated to the kingdom, to Christ's kingdom which was in power at that time. Have you done that? We read Romans chapter 6 today. You want to know how you're translated? You be baptized. You're resurrected to a newness of life and dead to, and sin is dead. Or you're dead to sin, I rephrase that. If you haven't done that, ask the question, why not? And why wouldn't you? Why wouldn't you want to be a part of the kingdom that Christ says after He finishes His role of mediator and says, here's my kingdom. The circle is complete. It is all in all. Also know as we go through these verses this morning. There's some of it that can be somewhat heavy-handed. I understand that. And I understand that sometimes we have struggles in life and we read passages and scriptures and they convict us. Fortunately, we are in this kingdom together. We want what's best for one another. We want success for one another because we all want to be a part of that kingdom that's delivered to God one day. And we all want to be in the best place that we can possibly be. 
We help each other. We comfort one another. We hug one another's necks. If you have any struggles, I beg of you to talk to someone. If you feel like you need prayers today, we can help you with that as well. If you would find yourself in either of these groups, we ask you to come forward as we sing the song that's been selected.